The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. The most common supernatural creature which comes to mind when we consider Islamic mythologies and the Arabian culture are the jinn. Although we do not know the actual origin of the word, its meaning translates as hiding or being concealed. Normally, for example, the jinn would be concealed from our earthly senses. We do, however, know the origin of the form of the word more easily recognised in Western cultures, the genie. It comes via the French, from the Latin genius, a Roman guardian spirit. The term genie was used in translations of the 1001 Nights, or Arabian Nights in English, a collection of Middle Eastern folk tales put together during the Islamic Golden Age, between the 8th and the 14th century. Joining podcaster researcher Tracy and myself to discuss the folklore of the jinn is another writer of Arabic folk tales, Deidre Stevenson. Originally from Greensboro, Alabama, Deidre now lives in Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates, from where she has written a number of fiction titles which draw heavily from the lore of the jinn. Her collection of short stories, Tales of the Lantern, after which I named this episode, is a little reminiscent of a modern version of the 1001 Nights. We'll talk a little more about that later. Hi Deidre, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, I'd like to start, like I do with most people, if I may, by just getting you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Now, obviously, um, you live now in the United Arab Emirates, but you're not from there originally. So um, how did you come to be where you are now? Well, I'm originally from a small town in Alabama in the USA. As a kid, um well, I, I, well, of course, I came here because of love, actually. I followed my husband to the United Arab Emirates. 
Um, but um, as a kid, I would have never imagined being in a place like this, you know, growing up in a small town in Alabama. Yeah, very different, I would imagine. Oh, very different, very different. When I was uh, a kid, I was pretty shy, and I was a bit of a bookworm, actually, always in the library and reading um, or attempting to write some of my first short stories. Um, Well, they weren't very good at that time, (laughs) but since then, I've gotten significantly better. And now I'm actually a multi-genre author with a fantasy fiction a trilogy called The Hakima's Tale, a courtroom drama called Desert Magnolia. And I've also got a, um, that the Desert Magnolia novel actually has been adapted actually into a short film script. And it's also been produced, uh, it's getting produced as a stage play, hopefully this year. And I'm a filmmaker as well. You'll find that I do many things, actually. Um, And my films won a few awards. Um, It's called Lemonade. It's a documentary which addresses the severe lack of services for adults with autism um, all over the world, but particularly in the UAE. And I've also released a cookbook recently uh, called Breaking Bread Around the World. And uh, as you can guess by the title, it is an international cookbook. Um, I'm not really a chef, but I'm more like a foodie, I suppose. That's the the modern term for it. (laughs) Um, Additionally, I have a horror novel based on Native American lore called The Skinwalker Resurrection. And last but certainly not least, a collection of chilling stories called The Tales of the Lantern. And that will soon be available as an audio performance. I say performance rather than an audio book because it's kind of a, um, it's far more than a simple narration. The stories are based on urban legends of jinn in the Middle East, actually. Yeah, well, we'll come back and talk talk a little bit more about that um, that audio presentation, I think, later on. But um, we'll, we'll, before we move on and talk about the jinn, themselves i'm just interested in whether you think that uh all of that reading and writing that you did as a child is where your interest in folklore first started out absolutely absolutely i was always fascinated with the supernatural and magic and also exotic locations i mean let's face it i was growing up in a really small town (laughs) in alabama so i think anything that would have taken me out of a place like that into um something a little bit more magical and fantastic you know was very welcome in my Mm -hmm. life and um you know i used to sneak out of my room late at night to watch um alfred hitchcock presents (laughs) tv shows excellent yeah (laughs) and also the twilight zone i was a huge fan of the twilight zone i think i've watched every single episode that's ever been made really yeah and of course we find a lot of a lot of common folklore um kind of tropes and stories in in the twilight zone narrations absolutely yeah (laughs) so do do you find that the uae is richer in folklore than your area growing up in Alabama was, or are there just two very different aspects of traditions and beliefs? Well, they're very, they're just two different aspects of traditions and beliefs. I mean, 
Well, growing up in Alabama in a Southern family, uh, ghost stories were incredibly common, actually. And in fact, it's kind of a trophy, I think, for a Southern family to have a, a ghost living in their house. <laughs> so, yeah. And um, of course, they would tell tall tales about uh, Civil War, you know, uh, heroes that have been, you know, killed in horrific ways that still haunt the, the halls of you know, your, your Southern antebellum home. And I mean, in our house, we had a bullet hole in our front, um, door in, in the, the beveled glass, actually part of the front door and no one ever bothered removing it or replacing the glass because it was kind of a, a cool thing. It was kind of a trophy and everybody told tall stories about, you know, somebody getting killed right there, you know, when the, the Yankees were trying to take over <laughs> their small town. So, yeah, it's yeah. kind of, kind of, you know, common thing, you know, to have ghost stories and, and, um, and stories of horrific uh, occurrences, you know, especially when you live in a place like Louisiana, for example, with the swamplands and stuff like that. You know, there's um, there's even a song about it, you know, uh, by a singer called Charlie Daniels. There's a, a tale of Lucius Craig. You know, he's um, an old man that was like a miser who, you know, dug up his money, you know, just to enjoy it. You know, and then he'd bury it back in the ground. And supposedly the um, three boys tried to kill him and steal his money. But, you know, the, the quicksand of the you know, his swampy area sort of dragged them down. And supposedly you can still hear them when a moon, there's a full moon, you can hear them all, the, the, the three boys screaming and you can hear the old man laughing. So that's good. Mate, mean, good material for a song too, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a great song. You should listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> so so let, let's move across to where you are now then in the UAE. Um, and as you say, it's a very, very different um, set of stories and set of folklore in the area that you Absolutely. are now. Um, so you you talked about your writing about the jinn, and the jinn, of course, are a very, very large part of folklore in the UAE. Can you, for those yeah. who who maybe don't know so much about the term, explain exactly what you mean by jinn? Because I, I guess a lot of people will. Naturally, if they think of jinn, think of genies, and therefore it's not only a short step to um, something like Disney's Aladdin as a presentation of a kind of stereotypical mm -hmm. genie. I'm going to assume that you're going to tell us that it's a little bit different to that. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think Disney's Aladdin is actually very charming, and I I really have enjoyed watching it with my kids, my family. But it is just loosely based on the nature of a jinn at best. Jinn, uh, as Muslims around the world agree, are beings made from smokeless fire who occupy another dimension. They can sometimes enter our dimension and influence us in certain ways, but most of them have no desire to interact with us at all, actually. Um, they were created before humans. And like us, they have free will. They are mortal as well because they can die, um, albeit after a, a significantly longer life in most cases. In fact, some can live for thousands of years. And they have families, nations, religions, and tribes just like we do. 
they they walk between us every day and we don't even notice that they're there because we, you know, they can see us, but we can't see them. And um, it's said that it's God's mercy that we can't see them actually, because they'd be incredibly terrifying. So I just want to pick up on one point that you made there. Um, you said that um, when you described what the jinn are like, that um, this is as, as agreed by Muslims around the world. Um, and that's quite an important point, I think, because many people probably just see Jin as um, a legendary character, for want of a better term, um, not something that is believed in strongly in the way that people believe in God, for example, depending on their religion or, or other things. Um, but you're, you're definitely saying that to many people, Jin are considered real. Um, and, and also, uh, in that case, are we looking at different types of, of jinn? Certainly in your books, you talk about many different types of jinn. Um, is, is that a fictitious presentation or is that drawing on the actual um, beliefs? Well, <clears throat> by every believing Muslim on earth, actually, jinn are believed to be real. And in fact, there's a chapter in the Quran about them called the jinn. Also, Islamically, uh, Satan, or Iblis, as he's called by Muslims, is a jinn, in fact. Um, as the story goes, um, he was adopted by the angels because he was a devout servant of God. And it was said that just one of his prayers to the Creator would last for up to 600 earth years. But when God decided to create mankind, Iblis became proud and jealous. And when God commanded the angels to bow down to Adam, Iblis refused, claiming that it was an, an abasement that was beneath him, basically, to bow down to such an inferior creature. Then for his arrogance, he was cast out of heaven into hell. And, you know, it's pretty much the same story from that point um, all over the world. Since then, the jinn that followed him had been trying to undo humanity and take them far away from any belief in God. The very the, the nature of the jinn actually is proud and jealous, in fact, and this is considered their greatest weakness. Now, you can find examples of that in you know other literature like the 1001 Arabian Nights. In the tale of the fishermen, for example, we can witness like how the fishermen got away from certain death by using the jinn's pride. After hearing the jinn say he would never murder the fishermen, no, actually the jinn didn't say he would never murder him. He said he would definitely murder him for opening the lantern because he was so angry that he had been trapped there for such a long time. He actually vowed to kill the person who released him because he was so late. <laughs> um, so the fishermen decided that, you know, he would use the pride, you know, to his advantage and told the jinn that he couldn't believe something as enormous as him would have fit into such a tiny vessel. So, you know, he took, of course, the jinn took this as a personal challenge and put himself right back inside the lantern. And of course, the fishermen closed it in on him at that point and escaped <laughs> from death. Um, as for types, there are those that fly, and I don't mean just ordinary flight, but interstellar flight. 
and it's believed that they can sometimes get close enough to heaven to hear the secrets of mankind's fate, but are mostly repelled by fire from archangels. The angels repel them always because they are sometimes malicious in nature and use information like this to trick us by feeding false stories to fortune tellers or soothsayers to manipulate our behavior and our beliefs. That's why it's considered haram or forbidden in Islam to um, get your fortune told, in fact, because most likely you're being fed uh, half-truths, you know, that have been planted in the, the soothsayer's mind by a jinn. Um, then there are some that dwell among us all the time, and many of these are assigned to follow our every move and record all of our deeds. It's said that we have an angel on one shoulder and a companion Jenny on the other, and the angel records the good deeds and the genie records the sins. Sometimes it's said also that the jinn may become frustrated or even bored if you don't commit enough sins. So he or she will whisper in your ear and influence you to do more sin as, um, you know, he inevitably as well grows competitive with the angel. Another one of his flaws. The Afrit um, or Marid are said to be the most sinister and powerful forms of the jinn. And it said that if you indeed witness an Afrit in its full form, in its most horrific face, you'll go mad with fear. Another type is a shapeshifter. And these can be, these can appear as animals, but they um, can also appear as a human. But they, al they almost always favor a black dog, a black cat, or the black snake. These are, are usually harmless, this type, but they're dark in nature and they just enjoy frightening us. As, you know, if you just say, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, they will run away <laughs> and uh, won't do anything. Now, there's been a lot of lot said on other forms that the jinn take, you know, like fairies, trolls, succubus, and, you know, things like that. But actually, jinn can be put into one of those three categories that I just mentioned almost always. And it's important to note that not all are considered bad. I, I don't want everybody to think that. Mostly, they, they don't have an interest in interacting at all and simply go on with life. And some even try to help us. It said that when you lose your keys or any object that you said and you suddenly find them in an unlikely place, that was them. It could also mean that you have a helper or an admirer. Sometimes even the most powerful of them can choose to follow a religion of some sort or be benevolent to humans, even getting revenge for people who were wronged in some way. I, I suppose there's some sort of similarity here, isn't there, with, um, I mean, if you consider my research on on uh, black dog apparitions, for example, uh, one of the forms that you say the the jinn will take as a shapeshifter, and of course, if you look at stories of apparitions of black dogs, they have this stereotypical presentation, often due to the media or the way they're written about by journalists, that they are demonic, uh, that they are hellhounds, and that they are, you know, omens of evil. Mm -hmm. But of course, that only accounts for half of the stories, and they can be protective um, in many cases, and and or, or completely neutral. And I guess that's very similar for the for the jinn as a race as well. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Not there. Most of them actually have no interest in harming you at all. They're just, they might be just curious about you or they might even want to help you in some way. But if, if they're gin that are not helpful uh, in, in any way at all and, and you want to protect yourself from them or, or be rid of them, uh, how do we go about that side of it? Well, um, there is one verse in the Quran, um, or a, a surah as it's called. Um, it's the Ayat al-Kursi. And it's very easy to just Google that, you know, and there's many recitations, you know, on YouTube and the like. And you can just play that or either, you know, have it laminated on, you know, a a card or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, you know, as long as that's being recited or that's with you even in any way, then you're fine. They can't do anything They're They become very afraid and retreat. Okay. (laughs) And, and also you say that um, they are mortal, which I think a lot of people don't appreciate as well. So they can be killed, but I'm going to guess not yes. e- not easily. Not easily, no. <laughs> <laughs> they have very few weaknesses. Um, but it, it is said that they're repelled by iron, in fact. And I think that you... Uh, have also said in your former, your research, you know, that iron is a metal that, you know, is used to repel evil spirits, you know, in other folklore. We find it, we find it in fairy lore, certainly, um, that, that iron is, is, um, is a metal that, that is, um, not kind to fairies. Um, so I, I guess there's some kind of similarity or crossover there as well between uh, mm-hmm. way, ways to repel um, something from the other realm. Well, and uh, according to Arab pagan belief, the wolf is considered the only animal that can kill them. So they actively fear the wolf, the, the jinn do. In ancient times before Islam, the wolf bane was, used to be hung over entrances to scare them away from entering. In fact. Okay, so so um, animals are more sensitive to them than humans. Absolutely. Um, in fact, animals can see them. You know, especially the uh, the cats and dogs can see them. Um, and also young, very young children, babies can, can sometimes see them. So it's said that sometimes when a baby cries and you don't really understand why, it might be because they were frightened by one. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> interesting. And then, and then um, as children get older, they become less receptive to it in exactly. the same way as people... Um, perhaps in more Western traditions, we'll say that uh, children or, be- or young children or babies, um, when they're looking around them, are more likely to be looking at something that we can't see as adults. Exactly. Yes. And, and they can see, it's said that they can see angels as well. And sometimes when you see the little little kids laughing and giggling or, you know, looking amused at something that you can't see, it could be an angel playing with him <laughs> yeah this is a theory as well isn't it for for where children get imaginary friends from when they're younger as exactly. well in many cases yeah yeah so mm-hmm. so uh we we can say that children 
might be able to see ghosts in the way that in adults uh, in right. adult life you can't so easily and the same for gin but uh, i mean does that make gin and ghosts similar or do they differ in in what they can do um well actually gin are said to have the power um of instant travel and they can um they they can go to places that um family members of, well let's let, let me back up a little bit I said before that um, Jin can follow you. There's a certain type that follows you your whole life, and they know every single thing about you, everything you've done, every secret that you have, because they've been there watching and listening the entire time. And after you die, they can appear as you. And sometimes they are, are doing that as a benevolent sort of thing to comfort your family, um, to make your family feel that you're still around or they could be doing it to to mess with you basically or to mess with people and they can appear anywhere they they they're said to have the power of instant travel so they can be anywhere that you are a family member or or a friend you know or somebody anyone who knew them you know can they can just appear there as if by magic and a lot of people take that to be ghosts in fact, uh, so Jen, actually, in Islamically, people don't actually believe in ghosts at all. They believe that Jen explain ghosts. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, so to them, and any story of a ghost or any haunting or uh, of a building uh, would be down to Jen rather than being any other form of spirit. Exactly. Every single time, it's always a Jen. Yeah. <laughs> so, so can they interact with our environment physically? Uh, yes, yes, they can. They can make, they can move objects, and because you can't see them, they're invisible to uh, to our eyes. It just appears that objects are moving by themselves, but they're actually not. And so, again, this this is something that that uh, would would explain. Um what some people would term to be ghostly hauntings then isn't it or poltergeist right yeah 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 (laughs) so is this um uh, an area of folklore that you were interested in before you moved from alabama or or was it kind of uh, you know your uh, interaction with the your new cultural surroundings in the UAE <laughs> that that brought this about, or was it something that you you had in your mind before moving? Well, um, when I was little, I'd, I'd already said that I I used to sneak around and watch you know programs, scary things that my grandparents wouldn't let me see, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like uh, Alfred Hitchcock and everything. But yeah. um, it really wasn't until I my father took us to a drive-in movie theater yeah they had those back then (laughs) (laughs) and we saw the golden voyage of sinbad um well ever since then i was hooked i was a big fan of fantasy fiction as it was but i just had a strong feeling after i saw that movie that it would be important to me one day and i was just in love with middle eastern lore it was just so exotic and wondrous and took me so far away from my life in small town America. (laughs) 
So, yeah, I think I'd already had an attraction for it from a very, very young age. And believe me, that movie for, uh, I think I was around eight when I saw that. And it was so scary, the skeletons and everything. And I was crying because it was, it was, I was scared, but I couldn't stop watching. My mother kept saying, well, just to cover your eyes, cover your eyes. And I said, I can't, I can't, I just can't. <laughs> I have to see. <laughs> and then later on, you, you met your husband who, um, of course, ended up taking you to the very culture which you'd already become interested in through these movie screenings and the like. So mm-hmm. so you write a lot uh, about these stories and I, I don't like to use the term stories because this, this is a belief structure rather than um, stories per se, but you are fictionalising those beliefs in your tales. Um, how have you been influenced by other people in your writing? Well, um, I'd have to say that as an author, I, I, Stephen King, Bram Stoker, and Oscar Wilde were great influences of mine. But more recently, I've been influenced by George R. R. Martin, the writer of Game of Thrones, yeah. and J.K. Rowling to some extent. But as a small kid, it was all about Road Dahl and Dr. Seuss. <laughs> when, <laughs> yeah, yeah, only they could have imagined worlds where a tiny universe exists, exists on a speck as it's been protected by an elephant, you know, or a world where trees were made of candy and the river was flowing with chocolate. Yeah, I guess you can say that I've always had a thing for stories that seem to be in the realm of the imaginary, but perhaps they're just real enough to conceive of yeah 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 absolutely i can see how that that would certainly um be a very powerful influence on on what you came to write um in the future yeah the Hakima's tale was um sort of uh and sort of honoring all of that uh tradition and oh i just thought i'd just uh, say also that the Hakima's tale is based a lot on, you know, the Jen and beliefs of the Jen. But it's very important to say that Jen can't really do a lot of the things that I make them out to do in the fantasy fiction ser- you know, trilogy that I wrote. Um, I got some criticism in the beginning, you know, when I wrote that trilogy that I was trying to spread, you know, false information about Jen. And I think I had to remind more than one person that of the definition of the word fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this is often a problem, isn't it? Is that it's it's very difficult sometimes to draw that distinction between yeah. fiction that's based on actual events or on real beliefs and fiction that just comes out of your head. And sometimes people forget that there is a line to draw between the two and that it's perfectly okay to take uh, take beliefs and take customs and, and take these things and expand upon them and reimagine them in your own way. Absolutely. I totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just touched there upon um, your writing for the Hakima's Tale um, and how you are weaving this folklore into your own imagination and you talked earlier about Tales of the Lantern um, which mm-hmm. is your collection of short stories which again draws on the same thing um, 
and I'll I'll go back to that a little bit more in a minute. Um, we've just been joined as well by Tracy, my wife, and the folklore podcast researcher, who's going to talk about this with us as well. Hello. Hello. There we go. We'll talk. Hi. About... <laughs> That's the introductions complete. Um, now the Hakima's Tale um, is a trilogy. Um, which you started writing some years ago. Was that the plan, or did you find that actually this is such a, a rich area of folklore that your story became much bigger than you were expecting? Well, yeah, I started to write it back in 2006, and at first it was just, I, I, truthfully, I started these, the trilogy as just something for me to do that was, um, something just for fun because I was a stay at home mom at that time. And I just, I really needed something cerebral <laughs> to keep me company. <laughs> so I just started writing it and it literally just the first installment just poured out of me as though it were, had been living in me for a very long time. And it just sort of wrote itself into a trilogy after that. And it was actually kind of amazing. It all came out very organically. <laughs> <laughs> and it does cover a very wide range of um, beliefs uh, in the gin, I guess, in the whole of that trilogy as well. Um, but your your other collection of stories based on this folklore, which are much shorter stories, Tales of the Lantern, um, I just want to talk about that in a second. But I would say that the reason that um, this is a good thing to talk about at this point is you said earlier about um, the audio presentation of Tales of the Lantern. Um, and that's something which is completely separate from the Folklore podcast, but is something that we as people are working on for you. In fact, Tracy is um, doing all the production work on that, which is why I wanted to bring her in. Um, but first, let's hear a little bit of an extract from some of the audio of that story. That evening, as she was departing, Carol noticed that the moon was full, and it glowed from the red clouds that engulfed it. She was still near Burgundy's home, and there was a chill in the air, even though it was the dead heat of summer. How odd, she thought, but shrugged off the prickly feeling that something was amiss. Unfortunately, on this particular evening, Carol was right to feel that all was not well. On this strangely cloudy night, when the full moon could barely be seen through the red clouds, an enraged energy found its way into the living world. As the human world slept, the entity swept through the air, seeking the bloodline that had cost him everything in life. So you've got a real mix of folklore in Tales of the Lantern. You've got a number of stories which all um, touch on different aspects of folklore from the area in which you live. Tell us a little bit about uh, what these stories cover and the folklore that you've based them on. Well, some of them definitely are based on stories that you would hear here in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, for example, the story of the Haunted Mansion is a combination of two urban legends that are pretty much tied together. Um, the Haunted Mansion is is an actual home in Rafalhaima, and that's one of the emirates of the UAE. At first, it was just a beautiful royal home. 
members of the royal family built it for a reported 100 million dirhams. Can, can you put Rumor... that in? Can you put that in perspective for uh, for people in Western <laughs> currencies as to how much that would be? Well, that would be about 25 million dollars. Okay. Okay. Yeah. N- not not insignificant yeah. as an amount of money then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that was back in the 70s mind you so it would be a lot more now sure in yeah. this time yeah <laughs> um but rumor has it that they only stayed there for a few weeks and then they fled the property and um everyone said that they heard women screaming they saw apparitions and saw the faces of children in the windows things moved on their own and lights would flicker on and off the nightly activity got to be so much that the family felt that they really had no choice. Um, and everyone knew at that point the jinn had claimed the house and humans are no longer welcome. Until now, no one lives there. And this was back in the 70s. So it's been an empty house for quite some time. Is it in a- fact, all, all of the stuff on the walls, the decorations, the, tr- the gold trimmings and everything is all still there. Is it a completely closed property or or can it be accessed or do people access it whether they're supposed to or not? They pretty much access it whether they're supposed to or not. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> but it's said that you can get permission, you know, if you know the right people, you can get permission to enter. And do we find stories coming out of these um, clandestine visits as to people experiencing odd things there still? Not really. You know, it's kind of frustrating for me, actually. I keep waiting to hear that someone actually experienced something when they went in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but until now, nobody has had anything happen, which is, uh, you know, I'm, I grumble every time and I wait for something to happen. So hopefully in the future, they will make an appearance again. You know, and scare somebody. <laughs> so, do you think? Do you think that it's a case then that that those jinn were attached more to the family rather than the property? Because that's that's quite a common trope in in some areas of folklore is is family hauntings or or family ghosts, for want of a better term, whether they're protective or malicious. Well, that could very well be the case. I mean, um, in the tale of the Turkish vizier, I kind of touch on that as well, that there was a blood tie to the protagonist in that story. And I I won't say anything else because I'll <laughs> give away the plot. Oh, no, no, no spoilers. No spoilers. Tell, tell us about some of the other characters or the other folklore that you're using in these stories. Well, uh, um Falasal is a character that's also in the te- the story of the haunted mansion. Now that's actually her tale is sort of a boogeyman story that old Arabic mothers would tell their children to get them to go to sleep quickly. Um, as the story goes, if you resist going to sleep, Um Salasal, which actually means mother of chains, will take you from your bed as she's always on the hunt for children to add to her collection to become new links in her chain. <laughs> Hmm, it's very, very scary. <laughs> yeah, that's quite interesting, though, because in the last episode of the podcast where we were looking at um, lullabies from around the world, there were, there were quite a few examples where the the approach taken by mothers or, or other lullaby singers was not necessarily to use a, 
a gentle song to get their children to go to sleep. It was more a case of using a story that said, if you don't go to sleep, it's going to mean something really unpleasant is going to happen. I'm not convinced that that's the best way of getting children to go to sleep necessarily. Not if you want a restful night in any case, but uh, this is the the beauty of folklore, isn't it? Is that different cultures have these completely different approaches uh, and, and what works in one culture would seem completely the opposite in another. Absolutely. I I agree with you. I don't think I would have ever wanted my children to be too scared to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, so what are, what other um, urban legends and pieces of folklore are you drawing on here? Or... Right. Well, uh, the girl in the desert definitely draws on another urban legend um, because there's a tale here of a gin female named Um al who's said to be a great beauty, and she always wears heavy makeup, and she's adorned in gold and beautiful Arabic dresses. Her voice is very seductive, and her singing is entrancing to men. But uh, as soon as she's lured them far enough away from everything they know, she shows her true appearance, which is hideous, and she kills them. (laughs) So I took this traditional version of the tale and gave it a modern twist in The Girl in the Desert. And um, if the truth be told, the concept of the seductive Arab siren was drawn from my my book, The Hakima's Tale, as well, because there's a whole chapter about the siren tribe. So, um, But just as Umal Dwais is hideous and dangerous up close, so are the sirens of the Hakima's tale. <laughs> it's often the case, isn't it, with these creatures that, that they may appear to be uh, benevolent at one point and then things take a turn for the worst later on. Absolutely. Oh, and uh, interestingly enough, you know, it's said here that that's why men should never trust a woman who's wearing too much makeup because she could be hiding <laughs> something very ugly underneath. <laughs> I, I think I shall refrain from comment on whether that is true or not. Oh. <laughs> I've got Tracy. I've got Tracy on one side. <laughs> I've got Tracy on one side of me, and I'm talking to you. And I think it would be unwise to pursue that any further. Um, Tracy, let, oh. let me ask you, as um, somebody who's working on these stories, which are coming from a culture completely different from our own. How does this folklore resonate with you as a Westerner compared to our own folklore? Um, I think for me, um, there are elements which I can pick out which are very similar to other things. For example, um, the Swedish Skogsra, the forest spirit, who looks like a beautiful woman from the front, but if she turns around, her back looks like tree bark and she has a tail. Um, There are elements of the sort of pleasant hiding and masking the unpleasant um, once it's too late to do anything about it. Um, I've really enjoyed working on them because they are very different in many ways to anything that we have here. Um, But it's also really nice to see the sort of continuity of the beliefs in these um, different types of folklore. Yes, absolutely. And how it's being perpetuated through different generations. So people today would still look at the Haunted Mansion House, for example, in the same way as people back in the 70s did when the furore kicked off. So it's it's 
and what, one of the things that I really like about it is that it's enabling a new generation of people in Western culture to get to know these stories and, um, you know, hopefully fire up their imagination, fire up their curiosity and get them looking into them, finding yeah, out more for themselves. Absolutely. And that's really important, isn't it, as well? Deidre, from your side, as as uh, somebody who grew up in one culture and then moved to the other culture, how how do you see that aspect? Well, I um, it's amazing that Tracy said what she did, because I, I really agree, actually, that I find it very curious that so many stories are actually quite similar in their own ways, you know, to things that we grew up with. Um, oh, and you might find it interesting that in the tale of the, the haunted mansion, I did sort of draw upon the Amityville horror for that as well. <laughs> that was also an inspiration. <laughs> so, so see, you know, we, we grew up with stories like that, you know, uh, the, in the Amityville horror. As, when I read that as a, a little kid, I, that scared the hell out of me. I don't think I really slept well for weeks after that. <laughs> Not surprised. <laughs> but it, it was it was really scary the thought that there was you know the house was built on a portal and it was a portal between the living and the 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 world of the living and the world of the dead and and even hell and and it was it's just really something and now you know now that we are lear- we've learned about the jinn we can understand that there are actually places that are considered portals between our world and their world as well so that's it's very interesting and what you were saying earlier also about the bedtime stories it's kind of interesting here that you know we you know the old old mother sort of tell told their kids scary stuff like on Salasal, you know but we grew up with the boogeyman didn't we <laughs> you know <laughs> you know that if you didn't go to sleep very fast you know he might come to you know take you away you know to his lair and do terrible things so well, yes. I, I think i was one of those kids though that was that grew up with that you know that scary story too <laughs> i think every every generation does grow up with a story like that don't they in in some yeah, way or they another do. <laughs> Uh, I mean, so it's kind of it's interesting how different cultures, even though they seem so different, they actually have threads that are exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, they really do. Um, yeah, and the, these are some of these tales as well. Uh, I guess in older times we would have referred to these as kind of campfire stories, if you like. Um, <laughs> folklore and storytelling are obviously intrinsically linked and um oral traditions of passing on stories go go back thousands of years here sitting in the 21st century that's still the case but sometimes we do that in a slightly different way now uh and that's something tracy's doing uh with your stories because you're kind of painting an additional soundscape with these stories to tell them or to enhance them as well as just letting the words do that um do you think that's a way that we can enhance the folkloric aspects of these stories and bring them to the fore oh absolutely i think it's really important because sound is really important to get your imagination going so you have the narration you have the actors voices but you also have this additional layer 
For example, if you watched a horror movie and then took away the soundtrack, it wouldn't be particularly scary. You know, you would just have somebody maybe walking through a dark house or going down the set of basement steps without a torch. But it wouldn't be particularly scary. It would just look a bit mundane, a bit quotidian. So adding in the music and the effects really heightens that experience. And it, you know, it sends chills down your spine. Maybe it'll make you jump. Maybe there'll be a sting in the music that warns you that something bad is about to happen. But it kind of rides on the story and gives the story something to ride on towards this common goal of really enhancing that experience for the listener. And so in the Arabic traditions, Deidre, going back through the years, was it the case that stories were enhanced in a similar way through the through the use of music only in a in a more live way absolutely yeah music was has often been used in you know what you said about campfires you know it's most definitely true of the middle east because there's a great uh tradition here of you know groups going into the desert during the colder months you know and that's considered a great pastime here in fact we're now into those cold months and, you know, the camping equipment, you know, selling like hotcakes now <laughs> because people are already planning, you know, their campfires and they sit around telling scary stories. And, you know, there's a little bit, they do a little bit of drumming. There's an Arabic, you know, style drum. I don't, I can't really remember the name of it now, sadly, but um, there's also horns and, you know, um, they, they, yeah. And they make the, the sound effects, of course, you know, um, not not with anything as uh, sophisticated as a sound system, of course, but, you know, with their own voices, <laughs> that sort of thing. But it's considered a great deal of fun. And the scarier, the better. <laughs> <laughs> because they're out there in the desert where, you know, gin would be, absolutely. I mean, that would be a, an area where they would be pretty commonly found. In fact, you know, that's considered to be kind of cool to go out there and come back with a scary story of something that happened to you when you were there. Yeah, I mean, we find it, don't we, in, in similar ways with, with what people um, call legend tripping um, and dark tourism in some cases. But legend tripping, where, you, where you're going to uh, kind of relive a legend in its actual environment, that's quite easy, I guess, on the fringes of the desert there to be able to go out in this environment and really use that to your advantage. Wow, I'd never heard of that before. Uh, what did you say, legend, legend tripping? Legend tripping, yeah. yeah. Wow, that that's a great term. <laughs> <laughs> that perfectly describes it, actually. <laughs> So where are you going next with these stories? Are you going to continue to draw on this folklore in your writing and and produce more from what what is a rich heritage to draw on, I'm sure? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think we can definitely expect a Tales of the Lantern Volume 2. And um, I think that you will see a prequel to the Hakima's Tale coming along in the very near future. And I'm calling that one Ayrutunar, the blue fire of the desert, because it's the backstory of the blue Jenny himself. And that was a difficult book to name as well, by the way, just FYI. Um, Ayrutunar is 
blue fire in Egyptian, ancient Egyptian language, because um, actually the word blue didn't actually have a word until the ancient Egyptians came along. Did you know that? Yeah, there was there was no term for blue in ancient Greece, I think. Is that right? No, well, I no. I misremember that. Um, yeah, no, it's very, it's, they, they didn't consider it a color. <laughs> it was very, very hard to find a word that meant blue, you know, <laughs> way back in time. So I settled on the, um, yeah, Ayrtunar, um, Ayr, it's, it's basically Ayrtun, Ayrtu is called, is the ancient Egyptian word for blue and Nar is fire. <laughs> Nar is actually still used today as the word for fire in Arabic. Excellent. That's really, really interesting. Thanks, Deidre. Um, we'll, we're going to run out of time shortly, so I'm going to uh, just stop at that point and say thank you very much for joining us and um, for discussing your work. We'll look forward to hearing um, a lot more in the future about the gin, I hope, through through the next um, books that you're going to bring out. Um, for people who are interested in your writing and want to learn more about it and see what's available, where should they go? Well, they can come to our website, which is www.bluegininmedia.com. Excellent. I'll put a link to that on the Folklore Podcast website for this episode. Uh, also links when it becomes available to the audio version of Tales of the Lantern. Um, for people who d don't get fed up with listening to me talking on here, they can also hear me talking on Tales of the Lantern as well. <laughs> um, and um, again, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to chat. Oh, thank you for having me. This was really fun. Thank you. My thanks to Deidre for joining Tracy and myself to discuss the gin in folklore, as well as her own website. I've put links to Deidre's work on the Folklore Podcast website, and you can also download Tales of the Lantern by visiting www.circleofspears.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. 
Thanks for listening. <laughs>